Hey everybody, we've got a new sponsor here at The War on Cars and we're pretty excited about them. Rad Power Bikes. Rad Power Bikes mission isn't all that different from ours. They want to make it easy to live life without having to own or drive a car. As North America's leading electric bike brand, Rad Power Bikes offers affordable e-bikes for every kind of rider. Whether you're meeting up with friends, running errands, or just trying to get some exercise, Rad Power Bikes are reasonably priced and thoughtfully designed. They'll help you flatten hills, avoid traffic, and reduce emissions. But most of all, they're just a lot of fun to ride. The holidays are coming up. You've probably got someone in your life who'd be happier riding a bike with an electric assist. Rad Power Bike would be a great gift. You could even get one for yourself. Visit radpowerbikes.com to find the right e-bike for you. Plenty of bikes in stock right now, and shipping is free. Again, that's radpowerbikes.com. Transforming the way we move and helping to win the war on cars. Cars are bad. They pollute, they're expensive, they're not good for the poor. In all of these like really obvious ways, it's not great for Americans to be wedded to this object that ends up costing them like $12,000 a year, like whatever that statistic is. Cars are bad. <laughs> this is The War on Cars. I'm Doug Gordon. I'm here with my co-hosts Aaron Napperstack and Sarah Goodyear. What's up? Hey, and uh, Doug sounds a little weird, but he does not have COVID. That's I have a, what's I have important. a cold. A Just a good old-fashioned cold. Yeah. I haven't had a cold in two years because of all the mask wearing, and now I have one, and it hit me pretty hard. It's almost kind of refreshing to see colds come back. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're back in fashion. So in this episode, what does media coverage of cycling and progressive transportation have in common with moral panics? Yeah. Why is it that whenever a city installs new bike lanes or sees a rapid shift in how people get around, there seems to be an equal and opposite reaction that isn't based on facts, but instead on fear? And, you know, we often call this phenomenon bike lash, this kind of nimbyism against new projects on the street, often bike lanes. But bike lash has a lot of similarities to other media-generated controversies, and panics. So I'm very excited about this because we have a special guest to help us explore this subject. We are joined by Michael Hobbs. Mr. Moral Panics over here. <laughs> so you might know Michael as the co-host of Maintenance Phase, a podcast that debunks the junk science behind fad diets and the wellness industry. And he is also the now former co-host of You're Wrong About, a fantastic podcast, very popular. Michael Hobbs, Welcome to The War on Cars. Thanks so much. I've been listening since uh, episode one. Really glad to be here. Oh, wow. Wow. That's pretty good. I'm also a scrappy little cyclist. You didn't mention that. Well, we, we were going to talk about that. You you live in Berlin, a relative cycling paradise compared to New York. You've also lived in, in Copenhagen. Tell us about your experience of living in different cycling cities and also Seattle. You lived in Seattle for a while. Yeah. Well, I think I'm a typical American in that I never thought that I was like a victim of car culture. I got a car on my 16th birthday. I was really excited to get one. And it was a symbol of freedom from my parents, right? It was a symbol of adulthood. And I was really excited about it. I was super into cars. I like knew all the horsepowers of all the cars. I read all the car magazines. I didn't think of this as like a uniquely American thing remotely. And then when I was 25, I moved to Aarhus, Denmark, which is a little college town in Denmark. And it was like you had to get a bike there because it was 
unbelievably expensive to get a car. It just was not an option to drive. There was no parking, no anything. And so I was like, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll bike for the first time. I hadn't really thought about it as a form of transportation. And then I started biking everywhere and I absolutely loved it. Like it, I was getting more exercise. It was cheap. I paid like 150 bucks for my first bike. And of course, like I wasn't paying for gas. I wasn't paying for repairs. And then slowly, you know, I, I eventually ended up moving to Copenhagen, lived there for five years. And I just got like super radicalized of like, this is just a better way to live. You never have to deal with traffic. You never have to deal with parking. And then I started to notice, of course, that when I came back to America and I was like, oh, I'll, I'll try this here where I live. It was just a completely different experience. It was just like an absolute nightmare. There's people throwing beer cans at you and yelling and there's no <laughs> right. infrastructure and it's this awful thing. And it's like, oh, well, maybe maybe there's not like a culture of cycling in Denmark. Maybe it's just like there's literally just like giant bike lanes everywhere. Welcome back to America. We're going to now try to kill you for using a bike. Exactly. <laughs> like <laughs> You're basically being anti-American by by riding a bike and, and you need to be reminded of that constantly. But it is, it is familiar. It's like this conversion experience that people have when they start riding a bike. It's just you had yours in Copenhagen, which happens to be probably like the best biking city in the world. So even more extreme. Yeah. I'm cheating. Experience. Yeah. Well, I think the biggest thing there's there's this extremely reactionary Prager U video that I return to sometimes called like the freedom of driving or like why America's car culture is great or something like that. And it has this whole thing about how like driving is freedom, right? Like driving is like you go from point A to point B and you can't do that on the bus. And to me, the the amount of hassle that comes along with traffic and like finding a parking space like doesn't feel like freedom to me. You just don't want to work hard enough for your freedom. Know, That's I the guess, problem. Why do you hate America, Michael? Come on. <laughs> I know. What a cuck. This is this sucks. <laughs> and so yeah, it just doesn't like it just seems like it's only freedom if you look at it in this like idealized way and not in the way that it actually is to drive for like 80% of Americans. Okay, so Michael, on your podcast, your co-hosts are Sarah Marshall and Audrey Gordon. So we have a Sarah sitting next to me. Oh, yeah. I, of course, am Doug Gordon. So, you know, make yourself at home. Oh, help yeah. yourself to any help yourself to anything in the fridge. You should feel really comfortable here. We've also had journalist Aaron Gordon on the podcast. We've had all Aaron, all Gordon shows, too. We're going to 2022 is just going to be people named the same names as us, as our guests. <laughs> I was wondering why I felt this warmth like I was sitting next to a campfire, and that must, yeah. that must be yeah. why. Make yourself at home. But before you do that, <laughs> we are going to hear a word from our sponsor. It's that time again. The clocks are falling back, it's getting dark earlier, and the weather is turning cold and gray, which is why it's the perfect time to throw on a clever hood. My personal favorite is my Rover rain cape in bright pink. It's hard to feel gloomy when I'm riding along on my bike, dry and cozy, and very visible no matter how dark it is, thanks to the Rover's reflective details. Plus, the people at Cleverhood aren't satisfied with just making stylish, highly functional rain gear. They're also focused on doing it responsibly and sustainably. They support environmentally friendly manufacturing, fair labor practices, and small suppliers. And Cleverhood donates 5% of revenue to advocacy groups working to create safer, more livable, and equitable streets in cities around the U.S. For 20% off all of Cleverhood's great products through December 31st, go to cleverhood.com slash waroncars and enter coupon code HOLIDAYRAIN when you check out. Again, that's cleverhood.com slash waroncars, coupon code HOLIDAYRAIN. Michael, your work on your podcast and in your journalism involves debunking a lot of things that fall into the category of moral panics. So maybe you could start by defining for us what exactly is a moral panic? I mean, there's various definitions over the years, but the, the general idea is 
a, a societal anxiety takes the form of some sort of specific other. So an example of a moral panic would be the satanic panic in the 80s and 90s, where we had this idea that there were cabals of Satanists taking over daycares. Also the razor blades in the apple, Halloween, that's kind of a moral panic. We've had moral panics about like political correctness. We've had moral panics about like teenagers and sex. We keep having the same one, like, you know, rainbow parties. There was the slap bracelet one when most of us were kids. It's It, it usually takes the form of like this, this kind of grave societal threat, but the only evidence of this grave societal threat is like these weird random anecdotes that don't actually hold up to any scrutiny. I'm just curious, Michael, because your podcast is so great. You're, well, one of, I, both your podcasts are great, but You're Wrong About is so enjoyable. And I'm just, how did you get into the moral panics? How did you start covering the moral panic beat? Oh, totally by accident. I mean, we started out just looking at like the the premise of the show was stories that the media got wrong the first time around. And so we started looking into, you know, Terry Schiavo and political correctness and street gangs and Tanya Harding and all these things, these kind of famous examples of the media really messing it up on the first draft. And then once you start looking into more and more of these, you find these extremely familiar patterns. And so it, we sort of got to the point where we could almost predict what was going to happen in these things. When you start looking into something like, you know, the McDonald's hot coffee case, you're like, ah, okay. So it's like, it's an incendiary anecdote that gets totally twisted around. It becomes this thing that nobody really cares about the details. And it, it's supposed to indicate this underlying grave societal crisis, but that's not really there either. And so it, it's almost like the, the ways that the media get stories wrong have these like extremely familiar components to them. Well, the the title of our podcast, you know, comes from just such a moral panic, actually, uh, the war on cars, right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I mean, the idea that you take one parking space and suddenly all of motordom is under threat, right? Like that one little anecdote about someone getting almost hit by a bicycle becomes, beware of the bicycles, they're all going to kill you. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is the very familiar pattern, too, with moral panics, is that they're oftentimes an offshoot of like a majoritarian backlash to social progress that benefits minority groups, right? So we had the thing in the 90s after Anita Hill was kind of like, well, you know, it's getting harder out there for men, like men in workplaces. You can't even ask somebody like get a coffee with you anymore because she's going to accuse you of sexual harassment and you're going to pay hundreds of millions of dollars in damages. And it's sort of you zoom out a little bit and you're like, really, it was was it hard for men in the 1990s? Like, really? <laughs> like, is that <laughs> like, does that hold up to any scrutiny? But again, you've got these like perfect little anecdotes that slot into these molds. And it's like, it, it makes you forget that like, no, men, men are actually fine. <laughs> There's just a relative loss of privilege. And it's very easy for people to catastrophize those into like, you can't even do anything anymore. Okay, so Michael, you recently wrote something for your newsletter. We'll put a link to it in the show notes. It's called The Methods of Moral Panic Journalism. And you talk about how there's been what seems like a, like, a lot of stories in mainstream publications now about cancel culture, wokeness that's gone out of control, sort of like you're saying, you can't say anything anymore, that yeah. like all of this is heading towards like the second coming of Stalin or Mao. We're all in big trouble. And in the piece, you identified four hallmarks of moral panic journalism. Wondering if you could talk about what those are. So basically, I mean, the elements, I mean, I don't want to say that this is definitive because each moral panic has like its own little flavor, but the ones that I identified in the wokeness panic specifically are these low stakes anecdotes that oftentimes you'll have like, this guy was going to give a talk at MIT and now he can't give his talk anymore. 
And it's like, okay, <laughs> like this, I don't know why, I don't know why we need a magazine article about this necessarily. You also have a lot of these like irrelevant examples. So one of the ones that I pulled out of a abysmal economist article about this was like, you know, they're banning books. The left is banning books. And the example they gave was JK Rowling. And they're like, JK Rowling, she's been criticized for her views. And you're like, right. So a book has not been banned. So it's actually evidence that this trend isn't in existence. Like we're not banning books. It's not an example of the thing that you're saying it is. It's an example of the opposite, but you're presenting it like it's an example. So we see a lot of that. And there's also the misleading statistics. I mean, this is something you see all the time where one of the statistics that goes around about this wokeness panic is like, I think it's like 68% of college students say that they're afraid of expressing their views because it might offend somebody, which isn't really evidence of like a Stalinist crackdown it's more like people are just trying to be careful with their words so that they're nice to people right like this is something all of us do all the time you're like should i say this thing eh, it might hurt somebody's feelings i probably shouldn't say it like that's actually that, that statistic is kind of meaningless and then the biggest one i think with with most moral panics is this idea of false equivalence that we have this idea that like the left is radicalizing and like you know you can't say anything and cancel culture hollywood movies blah 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 but then we also have like very well established efforts on the right to take away voting rights They've just essentially robbed women of the right to abortion in Texas. They're overturning ballot initiatives. Like the the efforts that are being done on the right are like being done by elected officials. And it's it's quite clear that like just straightforwardly the threat to democracy comes from the right. And yet we keep getting these articles about like, well, well, what about the the sophomores at Oberlin? Like, what about this speaker that was disinvited from a talk? And you're like, why right. why are we putting both of these things on the same on the same plane. It just doesn't make any sense. I mean, right. they want to change the name of food in the cafeteria at Oberlin, Michael. Come on. Right. It's like it's like this level of stuff. And every time you're just like, why are we talking? You see this in transportation all the time. For instance, we just got these new figures out about the surge in traffic fatalities for the year 2021. The figures are really yeah, staggering. Yeah, so we're, we're at about... 20,160 people who've died in motor vehicle crashes in the first half of this year, 2021. That's up 18% over last year. And it's the largest number of projected fatalities since 2006. Yikes. But somehow, if a bicyclist hits one person in the city of New York, that statistic is the one that gets pulled out. Not the fact that tens of thousands of people as usual, are dying on the roads of America, and that number is now going up. Right. It's almost this thing of like the the one of the challenges, structural problems with journalism is that it thrives on novelty. So kind of by definition, if an action is more rare, it's going to get more attention. Whereas I feel like the problem is that car accidents are so routine that it's almost difficult to get any attention on them unless they're like really extreme, right? Of like a, a mother with a baby or something that gets killed in a crosswalk. Unless it's something really hardcore and like kind of unexpected, you really can't get attention on these like just very routine, I don't even know what it is, like 25 people a day who get killed in car accidents. It's man bites dog, basically. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So now that we have an idea of what a moral panic is, let's talk about an example from the war on cars realm. So want to turn to this New York Times article from October 10th, and it was reporting on the big bicycling revolution that's happening in Paris, France right now. Just a little background on that. So Anne Hidalgo, she's been the mayor of Paris since 2014. She's now running for president of France. 
she's pushed one of the biggest and boldest and most successful programs to really just force cars off the streets of Paris, make more space for pedestrians, for bicycles, for transit, for for parks. She transformed the highways along the river into totally car-free linear parks. She, during the COVID lockdowns, she created 100 miles of new bike lanes. And she ran for election, essentially, on turning Paris into a 15-minute city where every resident could have everything they want and need available within a 15-minute walk or bike ride. This has been really successful. She just won re-election in 2020. And she's really transformed the city. And it's a city of 10 million people, and 1 million people a day are now riding bicycles. Yeah, and we talked with one of her deputy mayors, Christoph Nashdowski, about that. What he told us was, you know, we were elected on this platform. And so when we got into office, yes, people were getting mad at us for executing parts of it, but that's what we were elected to do. So we just did it. Okay. And so how does the New York Times, the U.S. paper of record, cover this fantastic victory in the war on cars? (laughs) Their headline is, as bikers throng the streets... It's like Paris is in anarchy. Oh, God. <laughs> it's, some, it's some kind of masterpiece. I thought I, I, I dove in the second I saw that. I was like, oh, this is, this is my shit. <laughs> so, just, all right, so just to give people just a quick little taste, here's the lead. On a recent afternoon, the Rue de Rivoli looked like this. Cyclists blowing through red lights in two directions. Delivery bike riders fixating on their cell phones. <laughs> Have they not seen drivers? I'm sorry. No, we we have to read that. Electric scooters careening across lanes, jaywalkers and nervous pedestrians scrambling as if in a video game. Okay, and it just goes on like that. But it's just... What and of course, they quote like a local resident who says it, it's chaos, you know. Shaking a fist at the swarm of bikes. <laughs> now, I'm just really trying to imagine that fist shaking is not really a French gesture. They've got a lot of gestures yeah. in French, but like the actual fist shaking, that I don't know. I'm just, I'm, I'm not actually it's buying that. Filter. It's the yeah. New York filter <laughs> shining through here. Michael, you had a kind of excellent takedown of this on Twitter, as you as you do about many things. Oh. Um, what was your reaction to this story? I mean, it's it's... What made it so moral panicky to me and why I think this is a, a useful framework for this kind of coverage is because it's it's basically taking something totally normal and making it exotic. And this is something that you see in moral panics all the time is that it's like, you know, people don't like a college speaker and the college is like, oh, yeah, we're, we're going to disinvite you because it's going to be a hassle. Like, yeah, that <laughs> that's part of having like speakers come to your college that sometimes like you just don't invite them anymore. But then this has then become like the sign of this like creeping Maoism. And it's the same thing here where it's like, yeah, you're looking at a street and like there's lots of people and it's kind of chaotic and like some people are on their phones and like some cyclists are jerks <laughs> right. and like some some drivers are jerks and some pedestrians are stressed out. Like, yeah, that that's a street. You're in a city. Like, welcome <laughs> to it. But it's it's described in this way as if it's like this really exotic thing like a cyclist ran a light and the pedestrians <laughs> were afraid and like yeah I, I don't know I, like i don't know what to tell you man like <laughs> welcome to city life Wh- it's whatever the same, it's the same jerks they're just on bikes instead of cars so you're less likely yeah, to be there's like killed by them now <laughs> yeah, yeah. by those jerks yeah I also love the thing of just literally walking around Paris and interviewing just totally random people. 
Like there, there are experts quoted, like to give some credit to the author of this piece, she also does interview like some, you know, Copenhagen urban planners, whatever. But like the first, I think three quotes in the article are literally just random people who are just like, yeah, I can't stand these cyclists, says like Tom S Smith, a, a banker who lives in Paris. And it's like, why, why would I care what this guy thinks? And surely you could walk around Paris and find people that do like the cycling infrastructure. So it's like, you've clearly chosen people who are going to deliver the message that you as a journalist want to deliver to readers, but you're not able to do it because you have to have this like weird patina of objective reporting. Like we're not here, we're not here to give opinions. We're just here to report the facts. So it's done in this like fake sort of official tone, but like you very clearly found people that you're using as a mouthpiece for your own opinions. And that really bleeds over into the kind of facts and figures that they choose oh to God. highlight in this article. So one great example was, on a recent afternoon, eight cyclists ran a red light en masse <laughs> on the Boulevard de Sebastopol, a major north-south <laughs> artery. Wary pedestrians cowered until one dared to try crossing, causing a near pileup. A near pileup? Like, what does that even mean? <laughs> what is a near pileup? You pile either up? have a pileup or you don't. Like, well, I don't understand. Right. Like, is eight cyclists running a red light? A lot, but it gives like that patina of statistics. Yeah, that yes, light, the right? eight, the eight, right, all mass, but also coward. I mean, really, but there's a number in it, so it must be true. Yeah, another number that jumped out at me from that piece is that they say that there's been a 35 percent increase in accidents involving cyclists. And as a reader, if, if you're not someone who's like a complete loser and who like knows these things, you're like, oh, this is an article about near misses with cyclists, and they're saying a 35% increase in accidents involving cyclists. So obviously that means cyclists hitting pedestrians, right? But no, <laughs> accidents involving cyclists also includes cyclists being hit and killed by cars. So this is like this perfect moral panic use of a statistic where they say, or like it, it's framed in the article to give you the impression that like cyclists are these like predators roaming the streets, but then Actually, cyclists are the victims of being hit by cars. But like, be, without that context, there's no way that you would know that from the story. And also without knowing what the baseline number of cycling right. accidents was. Right. Like, was it 10 it was, last year and 13 10? this year? Like, yeah, right. exactly. But also, also the fact that they have increased cycling by like 800% right. in the last year. Right. Right? It's actually a textbook misuse of statistics. Yeah. Well, so Michael, to your point, I think it's like two paragraphs later. The example they give that comes from a cycling organization, they say, recently, a two-year-old boy riding with his father was killed near the Louvre when a truck turned into them. That, that's not cyclists hitting a pedestrian. That is a truck killing a child. The, the example doesn't serve the statistics at all. That's, it's classic, like, irrelevant example, right? It's like cyclists are out of control. A boy, cyclist, was killed. Anyway, cyclists are out of control. And you're like, wait, I'm not sure that that story <laughs> is saying what you think it's saying. Like, that's evidence for the opposite of what this article is pretending to be about. If you, if you do look at the, the actual statistics and try to dig into it, the statistics don't back up the article's premise at all, which is, you know, the premise being being a pedestrian is suddenly so hideously dangerous because of all these crazy bikers anarchically riding around. The Local, which is an English-language French news site, has an article that where they put some of this stuff into context. 15 pedestrians lost their lives in 2020, a slight decrease from 16 in 2019. 
and 19 in 2018. So the number of pedestrians who are dying on the streets of Paris is going down. Walking was the most dangerous form of personal transport since eight cyclists lost their lives, as well as 11 drivers, 11 riders of motorbikes. So 15 of the deaths that happened last year were caused by cars or vans. Three were caused by heavy goods vehicles, another two by motorcycles or mopeds. Only one of the accidents involved a cyclist. And one was like a electric scooter or hoverboard thing. But like, when you actually look at the granular numbers, it's it's cars. Cars are the ones that are killing people. I mean, yeah, there is probably a great story that could be written about when you make a city a cycling city, it can feel more chaotic and more dangerous. And like, we should explore that human psychology. That's a really interesting thing to explore. Like, why do we see cars as just background noise, not dangerous? We ignore them you're almost hit by a bike and it's like, it's anarchy. Like, wh yeah. what is that human reaction? Talk to psychologists, right? Talk to professionals, urban planners. But this is just like a fear-mongering piece that seems almost designed to prevent change. Yeah, and it's classic moral panic stuff too in that a lot of people I think find cyclists annoying on a visceral gut level in a way that they don't find drivers annoying because all of the infrastructure is designed around cars. So it's not, they're not kind of violating the rules, right? Like cars aren't really going up onto sidewalks very often, but because the infrastructure hasn't really been designed for cyclists and we're not really used to having cyclists around, there are more of these interactions that like can actually be pretty unpleasant for pedestrians. And so it makes sense that there would be these like normal growing pains, but it's just one of those things that you really have to zoom out to see it of like, oh, the problem is actually cars, but on like a day-to-day, minute-to-minute level, it doesn't seem that way because they're not buzzing past you the way that cyclists sort of have to in a lot of crowded cities. And also you don't perceive cars as human beings that you can be annoyed at. They're big, scary machines, whereas a person on a bicycle is a person and you can see them. Yeah. And you probably are having more close encounters with them, you know, and there might even be more crashes. But like the crashes between bikes, like the little bump-ins and run-ins are so much less dangerous, so many fewer injuries and fatalities than crashes It's low cars. stakes to get back to Michael's yeah, right, piece, exactly. right? It's just low stakes. Okay, let's face it. The New York Times has gotten a lot better about reporting on these issues over the last few years. But, but they seem to be on a little bit of a roll here because, because it's not just Paris that, they, uh, that they're deciding to, to have their, their little moral panic about. It's, it's New York too, right? Yeah, there was a recent article about the explosion of e-bikes and electric mobility, micromobility here in New York, mostly on the island of Manhattan. And there was an article titled, As E-Scooters and E-Bikes Proliferate, Safety Challenges Grow. So it read, the coronavirus pandemic has upended many of the familiar routines that make up everyday urban life, bringing tectonic shifts in office culture, classroom learning, and online shopping. Now, it is transforming the way people move about the nation's largest city. A boom in electric-powered mobile devices is bringing what is likely to be a lasting change and a new safety challenge to New York's vast and crowded street grid. So basically, the story goes on to give some hard numbers about the rise of e-bike sales, scooter share programs, and how they're doing. And it continues with some of those same sort of like context-free statistics that you saw in the last piece. It says at least 17 people have been killed while riding electric mobility vehicles this year, 
according to city officials. Revel, which is the scooter sharing program here, electric mopeds, they had to shut down when they had three riders who were killed. So then the story says, e-mobility crashes have also killed three pedestrians this year, including the actress Lisa Baines, who was knocked down by a hit-and-run scooter rider on the Upper West Side. So I guess we should explain the yeah, it's Lisa Baines story. It's worth digging into that story. Again, it's like when you start to sort of look at the details, you see that it doesn't quite match up with what's being reported here. So Lisa Baines, very tragic death. She was run over on the streets of New York City by somebody on a two-wheeled vehicle. And the early reports, as they often are, were very murky about how she was killed, who did it, what kind of vehicle it was. Um, it was described as a scooter. And so uh, the sort of the instantaneous leap in the press was like, oh, it was it was these evil e-bike riders. It was these terrible delivery guys we see on, on their e-bikes or these teens or whatever. Streetsblog.org, after weeks of pressing the NYPD for information, found out that the vehicle that was used to kill Lisa Baines was a Fly 9, which is it's actually listed on the manufacturer's website under the category of motorcycle. Uh, it has a top speed of 40 miles per hour. It has a 1,500-watt motor, which is pretty powerful. By comparison, like, you know, most e-assist bicycles go 18 miles per hour. They have a 500 to 750-watt motor. So much smaller, lighter, slower vehicles. Nevertheless, this whole Lisa Baines tragedy fed into the narrative that all e-bikes, electric mobility devices are dangerous no matter what the size and purpose. That's another one where, I mean, there's a long history of moral panics coming right on the heels of new technology. So there was a big moral panic around jukeboxes when bars started putting them in the dance floors because the idea was that people were going to start dancing together and they were going to start having sex. Mm. And there was a huge wave. There's a huge, you know, there's a huge wave of panic about comic books. There's a huge wave of panic about video games. There's a huge wave of panic about TV watching and kids. And it's just, it, it feels like we're in the middle of this thing with scooters where again, like I, I sort of get that people think that they're annoying because the way that people use them in cities oftentimes is actually really annoying, but it's easy to sort of take those anxieties around like, yeah, something really unpleasant happened to me yesterday and turn it into this, like they're a menace and like they have to be stopped, which is usually where moral panics go. There's usually like an outsized response to them. So, I mean, it seems to me that that a lot of the time the response is that is coming from anxiety about the status quo changing. Right. That, you know, there's a deep societal shift happening underneath these technological changes and that the status quo is being threatened. And that's scary for people because they don't know where their place is going to be in, in a new status quo. And so I think that's really the case here where, you know, people understand that we're going through this huge societal shift in terms of our awareness of climate change, what we're going to have to do to cope with that, what's going to happen to our cities, are they going to be underwater? I mean, I think all of that is lying right underneath the surface here, and that's part of what's being expressed in these, you know, anxious articles and, and in this sort of trying to foment this kind of panic. I think, too, like you can seem somewhat insensitive if you boil it down to this, right? Like these are unquestionably, it's a tragedy. Right, Lisa Baines was a beloved actor. She, she's a like, human being. She's a human being, <laughs> yeah, right? Like she's, she's a, a person. She who was someone's should be alive spouse. Today. She was yeah. someone's friend, right? And but I think like we've all been doing this long enough to know that there's always one of these that happens, right? 
And this, the number of people killed by bicyclists in New York City usually hovers around less than one per year. Like that, that fact has not changed. And just like with the Paris story, as cycling has grown in New York, the number of people killed by cyclists has not grown at the same rate. It stayed actually pretty flat. So I think it does feel like there's this like, see, we told you these cyclists were really dangerous. You see it in the post. You see it in the tabloids. They're using these stories as a way. I mean, meanwhile, a three-month-old was killed on the sidewalk right, well, by a driver just a month ago. Exactly. Right? I mean, the, the actual opposite is happening, at least in terms of vehicles. I mean, there are more fatalities and injuries on New York City streets right now, and they're being caused by cars. They're being caused by cars and trucks and increasingly powerful, increasingly large cars and trucks, cars and trucks that are sort of like muscle cars that are designed and marketed for aggression. So again, it's like the exact opposite is happening as to what's being claimed here. Yeah. And, and in the piece, there's a paragraph that kind of speaks directly to what you just said, Aaron. Uh, it says, the influx of electric bikes and scooters has also brought more conflict to the streets at a time when traffic deaths have risen to the highest level in nearly a decade because of more cars, more speeding, and reckless driving. That, okay. That's the paragraph. So there's no actual connection there between right. the rise of e-bikes and the rise of traffic fatalities in fact, they're saying the rise of traffic fatalities is because of all the cars. Right. And so it, it's almost like sort of like the point you were making earlier, Michael, that like cars are just in the background and sort of like we can't do anything about the danger caused by cars. So why would you throw more things into the mix, basically? Right. It's like uh, it's like Republicans. It's like why it's like why why haven't the Democrats done this thing to like get around the Republican blockade? Like why what what's wrong with the Democrats' strategy to get over like the debt ceiling stuff? And it's like Republican intransigence is just taken as like background noise. And like, well, obviously there's no reason why the Republicans would ever vote for anything, but like the Democrats' strategic error. Like it feels like the same sort of thing going on. Where it's like who is given the moral responsibility in this situation? Scooters in disarray. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, basically. Yeah. I also think the scooter thing is such a fascinating example, too, because there's also this misplacement of blame, because I think that a lot of the criticism of electric scooters is really a criticism of the companies that are rolling out scooters in these cities. And like, I kind of get the fact that like, yeah, there wasn't a lot of consultation and just overnight, there's all these scooters all over the place. And these random companies don't really seem to have thought through of like, what does it mean for like disabled people to all of a sudden have all these like scooters strewn around the streets like there's no zones or like you know like the city bike scheme no like official place where you park them and like there's something here too about how like the private sector has taken over this role and has been able to like create this new genre of movement without anyone kind of like checking in or like like is this the good thing to do or like maybe we should regulate this in some like ways that make it easier for accessibility and other problems. But like all of those much larger and I think very valid issues get pushed on like these e-scooter riders are dicks. Like that's the that's the form that it takes. But it's like there's a much broader structural problem that is like much bigger than any of the individuals that are riding scooters. And by the way, you've just described the problem with cars. That like we have yes. these <laughs> private we we have these privately owned <laughs> personal transportation devices that are wildly inappropriate for the city, at least for transporting one person at a time in a dense urban environment. And like, they're totally unregulated and nobody, you know, and actually some of the, what's interesting to me is some of the stuff that we're imposing on scooters on these new weird exotic mobility devices, like speed governors, 
And, oh my you God, know, I know. And like geofences, like when you're in this area, you can't go any faster than 18 miles per hour on your scooter. These would actually be great ideas for cars. <laughs> so, know. you know, it's interesting how like in some ways the moral panic with scooters might, I hope, be leading us to like some policy ideas that we can actually impose on the far danger, more dangerous and much more inappropriate vehicles. Yeah, actually, that that leads me to a question I've been thinking about, Michael, since you're such a close student of moral panics and and how they play out over time. How do these things tend to resolve? Is there any kind of kumbaya moments where where everyone realizes, no, video games aren't the things <laughs> that are making our teenagers kill each other. <laughs> it's guns or whatever. Like, does this ever get resolved in a way that's productive? Honestly, like like so many things, the only way to deal with a moral panic is prevention rather than cure. Ah. Because most moral panics result in these really these huge reactionary backlashes and the researchers actually call them moral panic laws because people often pass laws really hastily in the midst of a moral panic. I think we're kind of seeing this with scooters. They're like, ah, just pass these like limits, ah. but they're not really thinking through like what implications that has for anything else in a city because there's all this public pressure or there's an anecdote that everybody's rallying around like somebody dies and then it's like, oh, we have to be seen to be doing something. And oftentimes they pass these laws that are really poorly worded, like nobody really checks through. And then you've got these laws on the books that years down the line, you're like, wait a minute, we ended up criminalizing something that we shouldn't have criminalized, and it ends up having all these knock-on effects. So usually what happens is moral panics result in these huge backlashes, and then everyone moves on very quickly and like doesn't really think about it or like really circle back to be like, hey, we really got this one wrong, and we're sorry. Like That essentially never happens with moral panics. Well, that's really encouraging. <laughs> I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> no, but I mean, it's like the McDonald's hot coffee case that you guys covered on You're Wrong About. It's like now, as a result of that, it's much harder to sue a corporation when yes. you are harmed by their products yes. or services. Right. And you don't get a like the New York Times or the Atlantic or whoever being like, hey, we just want to let you know that for years we published like basically one story a month reinforcing this thing that was not happening. Like Americans were actually suing each other less during the 1990s. And because of these wildly misrepresented anecdotes, you thought they were suing each other more. Just want to say, we're sorry. We messed this one up. Let's all talk about it. Like that never happens. It just kind of like people stop reporting on it once it gets debunked. But there's never any like circling back and like, I, I just want to take this like lingering understanding out of your brain. Like that doesn't happen. Okay, Michael. So to tie it back to your your piece in your newsletter, which I, I thought was outstanding, and it certainly made a big splash on social media, you wrote that journalism thrives on unconventional narratives. So it may appear that Republicans are a threat to democracy, but the true threat lies on the left, is a more compelling story than things are what they seem. And- I wonder if that's, in a way, in the safe streets world, in the war on cars world, why you know advocates like me and other people, Aaron, Sarah, sometimes we get lectured as being, oh, you boring, humorless scolds, always going on and on about how dangerous cars are. Don't you have anything better to do? The real threat comes from that guy on the Fly 9 e-bike who just ran someone over you know, yeah. three months ago or whatever. And it's yeah. like, yeah, because that actually 40,000 Americans are killed every year by cars. Right. I, I know it sounds boring, but it's true. 
right? Cars are bad. Sorry. Like cars are straightforwardly bad. I get that. Like there are reasons why people need cars. There are places where people need cars. There's all kinds of exceptions to this, but like cars are bad. Like they pollute, they're expensive. They're not good for the poor. Like in, in all of these like really obvious ways, it's not great for Americans to be wedded to this object that ends up costing them like $12,000 a year, like whatever that statistic is, like it, car, cars are bad. <laughs> and so it, it's really boring to say it, but like the, the problem in like 98.5% of these cases is just like straightforwardly cars, but nobody wants to write the same news story over and over again. So we have to fret about e-scooters for a little while, but it's, it's pretty simple. Well, that is it for this episode of You're Wrong About Bikes. <laughs> They're good, actually. They're good, yeah. actually. Michael, <laughs> thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much, gang. Yeah, it's it's been terrific to have you. We will put a link to Michael's newsletter, Confirm My Choices, and to the podcast Maintenance Phase in the show notes. And as always, remember, if you want to support The War on Cars, go to thewaroncars.org click support us and join today starting at just two dollars per month we will send you stickers lots of other special items and you will get access to exclusive bonus content as always we'd like to thank our top patreon sponsors charlie g of human powered law in portland oregon the law office of vicara and white in new york city drew rains virginia baker and james doyle let's also thank our brand new sponsor rad power bikes and our old friends at Cleverhood. And also, just a reminder, we have all sorts of merchandise, including a brand new Cars Ruin Cities t-shirt and sticker. Check that out at thewaroncars.org slash store. This episode was recorded by Josh Wilcox at the Brooklyn Podcasting Studio. It was edited by Ali Lemer. Our music is by Nathaniel Goodyear. Our logo is by Danny Finkel of Crucial D Designs. I am Aaron Napperstack. I'm Sarah Goodyear. I'm Doug Gordon. And this is The War on Cars. Ever since Henry Ford built the Model T, cars have been central to the American experience. That's because cars are more than just another way to get from point A to point B. They allow us to go wherever we want, whenever we want, with whomever we want. Think about it. With trains, planes, and buses, the routes are planned, and the schedule is timed. Only cars allow you to be spontaneous. When you get behind the wheel, you are in control. You are free.